0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges in chapter 19. And we'll be looking this morning from chapter 19 uh, until chapter 20, verse 11, and I'll read it out for us. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father God, we do ask that you would help us as we gather together around uh, your inspired book. We pray, our Lord God, that according to your promise, it would be uh, the sword of the Spirit in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would give us listening ears. Prevent us, uh, Father, from hardening our hearts And we also pray, Lord, that you would clarify our thinking in this age where there's so many confused ideas being pushed at us from every kind of media. We ask for clarity of our worldview, of our thinking, and that our emotions, Father, would be engaged to and moved by that truth and in particular as we come to these dark last chapters of the book of Judges that we would approach them Lord with a an appropriate kind of seriousness but not solemnity, instead Lord with the vibrant vitality that comes from the realization that as your, your children, we know the hope of the light of the gospel by contrast. And so we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus and his glory. Amen. So friends, Judges chapter 19 and beginning at verse 1, I'll read to verse 11 of chapter 20. Let's hear God's word. In those days... When there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, And was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son in law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father in law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city and the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has uh, taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold the men of the city Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them... And do with them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel got up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite... The husband of the woman, who was murdered, answered and said, "'I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces.' And sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as uh, one man, saying, none of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot and we will take men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city united as one man. I suppose uh, many of us have heard of the well-known phrase uh, that goes as follows. Power corrupts, uh, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, No doubt, and certainly the Bible isn't naive about the malevolent influence of power and its tendency to be corrupting. No doubt there's some truth to that. But what's fascinating when you think of that well-known phrase that influences a lot of our ideas about authority and power is how different is the Bible's approach. Here the issue is not too much power but lack of power. Very clearly, it tells us, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, there's no authority. And uh, that phrase is repeated time and again towards the end of the, the book of Judges to make it clear. That's the, the main idea of these sections. So chapter 21, and it concludes the whole book, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What the author of Judges is telling us is that the moral chaos that we see described here has its roots in a lack of godly authority. In particular, there was no king. And ultimately, the king that he has in mind is, of course, that king who brought them out of Egypt... And led them safely through through the desert land and into the promised land. And who we know as Christians is fulfilled in King Jesus. In their rejection of God and his authority, uh, they, they sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind What we're having here described is a downward spiral. Uh, we saw the first step of that downward spiral last week. With a rejection of God's authority, then you have increasing idolatry, many different kinds of gods. And of course, with many different kinds of gods comes moral confusion. Who's to say what is right? Well, the answer is, I'll define it. Each person did what was right in their own eyes. You reject God's authority, you have Multiple gods, therefore, idolatry of one sort or another. Who's to define what is right and true? The answer is I'll define it. Each person does what is right in their own eyes. And then this next step downward in the spiral is um, immorality as a consequence that leads to Violence. And then next week, we'll see, it leads to society-wide violence, really, civil war. Of course, Jesus has taught us this, hasn't he? Uh, When he was asked what's the greatest commandment, his reply was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the two are connected. Loving our neighbor is part of the same essential commandment of loving God. Because you, if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, soon enough you won't love your neighbor. And as they rejected God's authority, inevitably their neighborliness, their social cohesion um, became destroyed. We, I suppose, might put it like this, that God is the ultimate humanist. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The two are connected. The one is the result of the other. And I think we should also, at the start of this consideration of these uh, words that we're looking at together here this morning immediately acknowledge that what this proves is the Bible's diagnosis is right. Why do we experience social friction? Why is there moral chaos? The answer is the rejection of God leads to us brutalizing one another. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will then love your neighbor. And if you reject God, inevitably, the downward spiral, you end up um, brutalizing your neighbors. But our task, of course, as we look at this together, is not only to identify that downward spiral diagnostically, but also seek to reverse the downward spiral and turn it into an upwards escalator. And as we look at this passage together, that will be our goal. And there are are four areas of that uh, downward spiral that we need to turn to an upwards escalator. Uh, The first is family. Family. You can see this in the beginning of our passage, verses one Uh, through to 10. What a chaos of family life. It's a Levite, that is a religious man, who should know better, who has taken to himself a concubine, that is he has a mistress, and inevitably his unfaithfulness to God's standards leads to her unfaithfulness to him. Inevitable consequence. And then, quite remarkably, uh, she, when she leaves him, goes back to dad. And then, when he goes to try and win her back again, the, the, the father in law, the girl's uh, dad, uh, supports this um, inappropriate relationship. And not only does he support it, he tries to support it with an extended set of drunken feasts to sweeten the uh, the relationship. It's all a gross caricature of family life. It's like The Simpsons, but worse, or South Park, but worse. And here in this uh, first section, as we seek to turn the downward spiral to an upward escalator, we're not given simple tools to have a happy family life. You can look at, you can read books and blogs about that innumerably all over the place. What we have here is a motivation. This one bit of family chaos led inexorably to violence and civil war at a national scale. Uh, perhaps uh, you've heard uh, of the butterfly effect. Uh, scientists believe that one, when one little butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world, Uh, The world's ecosystem is so fine-tuned that it will cause a storm somewhere else. That's That's the thought, anyway. Similarly, one little family chaos has a huge impact on the whole country. That's what the author is saying. Your family life is not only your private business. It impacts all those around us. And as we seek to turn the downward spiral to the upward escalator, and by the motivation then, we're, we're reminded of the Bible's description of family life. Of course, with Adam and Eve and their relationship with one another in in the beginning. And the whole point of that, as the Apostle Paul teaches us, is that family life is not merely, as I said, a private business. It has a gospel purpose. Your family life, uh, your marriage, is a God-designed hardwired into the nature of reality, mystery, that which was hidden but has now been revealed about the gospel. The way you treat each other in your family, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, proclaims the gospel or it should. Now that's not motivation to put in the hard work to to have a A good family. I don't know what what could be. What goes on behind closed doors is not a private matter. It's a matter of gospel progress for the whole country. So the first area is family. The second area is city or the city. Uh, And as we think of family, let me uh, just as I try to summarize the way that the family works, it's in the upward escalator. Let me put it in one phrase. Your family might just be how God saves the world. Well, then the, this next pick, city. And uh, in one phrase, how we turn the downward spiral of this city chaos, uh, it might be that our city might just be how God saves the world or sends revival to the world. Our city. Of course here we have a city that is disastrous. And the sheer horror of not only inhospitality in a city. Which we're very familiar with. But of uh, debaucherous gross abuse as well in cities. Which we're also quite familiar with. Uh, it is as I say sheer horror it's also ironic that they might have been safer if they've gone to a non-Israelite town a town that hadn't been influenced by biblical teaching or meant to have been influenced by biblical teaching perhaps they've been safer among the Jebusites The, uh, the inhospitality of that city as they go to the town square and no one will look after them, the only person who brings them in is one old man. And the reason why the narrator tells us that is what he's saying is the only person in that city who remembers how it should be done is that one old man who knows the good old days, and the way people used to look after each other. Of course, he's certainly not perfect either, but at least he understands hospitality at one level, even though he failed hugely later. My friends, one of the great signs of the decay of modern life is we do not feel safe in our cities why don't we feel safe in our cities well the answer is because there are lots of people there and if we have lots of people who are not loving the Lord their God with all their hearts or mind we have an exponentially increased probability of lots of people not loving their neighbors So it's not an issue of the country or the city being better or worse. The issue is where there are lots of people who are not putting God at the heart of their lives, we intuit there's increased danger, which there is. It is one of the great signs of the decay of modern life that we don't feel safe in cities, and it's one of the great tasks of the gospel to change that. The early Christians did not run away from the chaos of the ancient cities. They stayed. And because they stayed, they won the ancient empire. All the other rich people, the pagans, fled to the country to be safe. The Christians stayed. They had a mission. They understood, I think, the Bible tells a story. Paradise now for us Christians, is not a garden. That's how it began, the story, in the Garden of Eden. But the story is completed not in a garden, but in a city, the city of God. And the great task of the gospel is to redeem our cities and to build the city of God. That our cities might be lights on a hill, a city on a hill. So then, my friends, don't... You may feel that Chicagoland is a complete moral disaster. And there may be some truth to what you feel. But if you're operating by biblical gospel values, you won't therefore immediately flee to build a mansion in Tennessee. You'll stay and be light. That's how the ancient Christians won the culture. Not by running away, by staying. And that's why it's so important for us as a church to be hospitable. As a church, we don't simply want to be a place that is welcoming, though that's obviously a good thing. But if you go to a wedding, say, and you're not part of the family at the wedding, the family will do its best to make guests feel welcome. But you're still not part of the family. Our task as a church is not merely to welcome people who come in, but to help them feel part of the family. That is to be hospitable. Our city might just be how God saves the world. It might just be that God's plan to redeem this country and this nation is through Faithful people who stick it out in Chicagoland. So family, city, and then I think most uh, uh, relevantly, if most controversially, men. Men. The men here are... Disastrous, aren't they? You've got a violent gang who behave not just reprehensibly but horrifically. But then you've also got the Levite who's meant to be a man of repute, but he's just caved in passively to his sexual desires and his having a party and drinking and letting his heart be merry again and again and again. And then there's the devastation that the concubine experienced. It is quite remarkable, I think it's one of the most remarkable parts of this passage, that the concubine's name is never mentioned. And I think the author of the story is telling us thereby that not only did they meet this, not only did they act with horrific abusive violence on this woman, but so unconcerned were they by it, they didn't even bother to record her name. The men are acting appallingly. But that is uh, what we see, isn't it? As society breaks down, as we reject God as our king, as we reject loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and face, one of the first signs of that happening is men lose their way. And that's what we're experiencing. Men today, especially young men, are in crisis. What happens when men are, are, uh, reject uh, God and men feel disenfranchised from society and f- cannot find their place is men become more basic. What it means to be a man then becomes more like a caricature of what it means to be man. Like, a man. It's violent and overly aggressive. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing all around us. Men are natural fighters. There's something in a man that is naturally aggressive. But men are intended to protect. They're natural fighters. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I urge everywhere that men would lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing, because men tend to be angry and dispute. Men are naturally uh, fighters. They're designed, intended to protect But our our men are in in crisis today. If you have any doubt about that, just look at the attendance uh, uh, proportions uh, at uh, any university or college today. The vast majority are women. Men are checking out. They feel there's much less opportunity for them than there used to be. Everyone talks about toxic masculinity. They feel marginalized. And they either respond with passivity, checking out, or over aggression. They feel let down. Many young men do. Don't have opportunities like they used to. And education, of course, is designed around the feminine. It's. Most boys at grade school are not designed to sit in a chair for seven hours a day. They're just not made that way. And they, their grades don't do so well. What's the answer? How do we turn this downward spiral into an upward escalator? Well, fundamentally, men need to know God as their father. Well, that's a challenge because for many young men, they haven't had a good human father figure. And therefore, the idea of God being their father, they're not even sure what to do with that. How does that work? What does that mean? And so here's the opportunity. If you're an older man in this congregation, you have a fundamental responsibility to mentor To be an example of what it means to follow God, to be a father figure for the younger men. They won't look up, they won't tell you that's what they need, but believe me, it is. Our young men are in crisis across the country, in churches. They need to be spiritually fathered. We must release our men, train them. Of course, this isn't about uh, women need encouragement too, but the passage here is about the disaster of the men. And therefore, we must turn the downward spiral to upward escalator through spiritual mentoring and spiritually fathering our young men. It might just be that our men are how God saves the world. It might just be that our city is how God saves the world. It might just be that our family is how God saves the world. Well, the final of these uh, four categories of downward spiral, that it is our task to turn into an upward escalator, is uh, in chapter 20 in the first 11 verses there, that I summarise this one word, church. Church. It may not seem obvious to you that this is related to a church, but it really is. If you look at verse 1, they gather, and the author is very clear to make us understand this is a religious gathering, the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord. This is church. That's the language that's been used. It's a religious assembly. It's a church gathering. And it's very similar to the language of the, of the assembly that happened at the beginning of the book of Judges in chapter 1. That there, a much better assembly here, a pious fraud of church. They assemble before the Lord. It's pseudo-religious apparently before the Lord, but not really. All they're interested in is revenge. They're going to repay the people at Gibeah. They're going to get their revenge. And there's no message from God. The Levite, who should be bringing a word from God, he brings a deceptive description of what happened that conveniently leaves out any Reprehensible deeds that he did. He uh, makes the most of the situation. He leaves out any part of his own culpability from his story. Vengeance is always a mistake. And one person said that vengeance is the daintiest morsel ever cooked in hell. Where is the word of God in this assembly? Where is their forgiveness? Where is their justice? Where are the law courts? They, they, they hear report of a woman being raped and killed and their response is to form a lynch mob. It's a pseudo religious gathering. As the Apostle Paul quotes, It is mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Where's their understanding of that? Gone. And of course, we see that in our own day too. Uh, church becomes tunneled out. By consumeristic values. All these different churches competing for our attention and our dollars by advocating one particular approach versus another approach. And, and church becomes a sort of prostitution of religion, it's not really before the Lord. It's just consumerism. Or church becomes an arm of the political fight to get vengeance over enemies. It's not an assembly before God. How do we turn the downward spiral of church into an upward escalator, bringing back the gospel into the heart of the church? Family might just be how God saves the world. Your city might just be how God saves the world. Men. Yeah, Men. Might just be how God saves the world. Of course, He did through one man called Jesus. And church. Not this fake pseudo religion that amplifies the disaster by seeking violence and revenge. But a church where we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore love our neighbors, where the gospel. And God is the heart. If you want to turn your life around, if you want to build your life into something truly meaningful, here's how you do it. You ready? Embrace the authority of God in your life. Follow God and his word in your family, in your approach to the, where you live, in your city. As a man or woman of God, and with God as our king, we won't fan the flames like they did. We'll douse and quench the evil and overcome evil with good. By the Spirit, we will resist the devil and his ways. And with Jesus as our King, gradually we'll become more and more like him. Let's pray together. Our Father God, uh, only you can uh, turn the downward spiral into an upwards escalator. Uh, This passage, as we read it, seems all too familiar of the descriptions of contemporary life. Uh, But there is hope in the kingship of Jesus, your Son. We pray, Lord, that we would embrace his authority in our family in the city as men. Oh Lord God, would you raise up in this congregation hundreds, thousands of men in their twenties and thirties who are men of God, not passive, not aggressive. men of God. We pray, Lord, that you will guard this church and our approach to church, that we wouldn't have a consumeristic mindset and chase trivialities and preferences, but actually assemble before you.